Your way back to your seats, I would invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. It's also printed for you in your bulletin on page 9. We are in our 10th part of our series through the Gospel of John. I've entitled that you may believe. And again, we find ourselves in the 6th chapter. John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. When I was just a, a wee lad, okay, a wee lad, a toddler really, uh, I had a favorite tricycle, you know, the, the standard red Fisher-Price or whatever tricycle, and I would ride it everywhere I could, and I would even take it on trips sometimes. In fact, I took it to my aunt's house, who lived in Merritt Island at the time. And again, I, I couldn't have been more than a, just a few years old, and I remember riding the tricycle around her pool, and was just riding it lap after lap after lap, and then of course I take one turn, and the wheel catches the edge, took the, took the turn a little too tight, you know, and, and I go. Just tricycle and all fall uh, smack into the deep end of the pool. And my dad, who was inside but could see through the window, see through the glass, comes running out, you know, clothes and all. It was an event sort of after, I think, even a church service, so he's dressed well. Jumps in, clothes and all, as any parent, of course, would do, and pulls me out of the pool, uh, saves me, literally, uh, and, of course, reminded me of that every day of my life, you know, <laughs> since then, that, you know, how that goes with parents. So, <laughs> well, our text this morning, a text which is well-known, both inside and outside the church, sort of features a similar account, though they're not children, of course. It's a familiar text, again, inside and outside the church. Jesus walking on the water, walking on water, has become even kind of a metaphor, if you will, you know, for things even in our culture today, that you use that phrase to describe, you know, with hyperbole, someone's incredible ability. Or you perhaps even use it sarcastically to kind of poke fun at someone, right? Huh, that person thinks they can walk on water, right? So again, it's a passage that is, is well known, both inside and outside the church. But in this text, the disciples, again, they find themselves in this similarly terrifying predicament that I found myself in, you know, falling in the water when I was a toddler, that they're crossing the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. And this sea is about, you know, 12 miles long, 7 miles wide, and they're crossing it in the dead of night. 
So that speaks to the fact that these disciples were no novice sailors. They're doing it in the dead of night. They're quite capable. However, they're still taken off guard by these characteristically, you know, out of nowhere, quickly developing storms that would sweep the Sea of Galilee. And they find themselves in the middle of this this squall. And so their progress as they're trying to cross the sea is, of course, slowed. And their nerves are quickened a bit, and they're, you know, they're getting a little agitated and, and, and fearful. Now, this is not the story that will come up later in the Gospels, where they're just outright terrified, and Christ is already with them in the boat, and he speaks the words, and the storm is stilled. It's not that level. This is not a Category 4, Category 5 storm, okay, that you would probably imagine in that story. But nevertheless, it's a, enough of a of a squall that, again, these sailors who are quite capable, quite experienced, are are frightened. They're frightened, and they find themselves, again, in the deep end, if you will, of the Sea of Galilee. But many of you might have some questions about this text. Kind of like when you heard my story about falling in the deep end at my aunt's pool, you obviously, you know, had some questions. Why weren't my parents outside with me? You know, what does that say about their parenting? Okay, you should ask them next time they come to visit, okay, by the way, all right. Uh, why hadn't I learned to swim yet, right? I mean, I grew up in Florida, grew up around the water, okay. Again, questions come up. Similarly, you probably have questions about this text. Why do the disciples leave Jesus? Have you thought about that? If you remember, if you remember last week, they were just at the feeding of the 5,000, where Christ multiplies the loaves and the bread, the smoked fish dip and the crostinis, okay? He has enough for the whole crowd. All right, that just happened. And now the disciples are leaving Jesus. Why? Why do they leave Jesus behind? I mean, is he, is he late? Is he late for the carpool? You know, late for the boat pool across the, the Sea of Galilee? Is he like, you know, my children who when we say, we got to leave the house at 7.30. That then to them means 7.30 is like when you start putting shoes on, socks on. No, 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 no. 7.30 means like your bottom is in the seat, right? We're pulling out, all right? Was Jesus late? You know, missed the memo. They leave without him. He missed the shuttle down from the mountaintop to the Sea of Galilee, and oh, the ferry's left. Ah, he's late. Misses the boat, literally. I mean, what's going on here? What's going on? Well, the answer, of course, is that if we look at the other Gospels' accounts of this event, that this story is not just recorded in the Gospel of John. It also comes up in Matthew and Mark. It's not in Luke, ironically, but it's in Matthew and Mark. And we're told in those kind of larger accounts that Jesus wasn't late for the ferry. He wasn't late for the carpool. That what happened was after the feeding episode, which, again, we saw last week, in John, the gospel itself, Jesus withdrew, if you remember, to escape. He feeds the crowd, but then he withdraws from that crowd in order to escape their political, if you will, revolutionary, if you will, designs to make him king. They want to rally around this miracle worker and use him as their prop to then try to lead a rebellion against the Roman Empire, against their overlords. And Christ knows this. He knows their misunderstanding of who he really is as Messiah. And so he withdraws to a mountaintop 
by himself, and we're told in the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, that he does that to pray. And we're told then also in those accounts that Jesus insists, he insists that his disciples then get in the boat ahead of him and sort of, you know, flee the scene, if you will, while he dismisses the crowd. And again, that might raise other questions like, how are the disciples okay with that? You know, here they find Jesus in a swelling crowd of five, 10,000 people, you know, clamoring to make him king, and they're just going to say, oh, it was real. Thanks, Jesus. But we're going to now go, you know, over here. Hate to, hate to eat and run, you know, enjoyed the loaves and the fish, but we're going to go now over here. But again, no, the reason that we see is that Jesus is insistent. He's insistent that as the crowd begins to, to swell and as the crowd begins to have these designs on him, politically, if you will, he, he has to withdraw. And he has to make sure that his disciples flee the scene. So apparently he goes up to the mountaintop, he prays, he comes back down, he dismisses the crowd, and he sends the disciples ahead of him. And he does that, he does that because he wants to make sure they understand three things. And don't misunderstand these things. Three things, we'll see them here in the text. Jesus wants them to understand where he fits in history, where he fits in the story of Israel, and where he fits in their lives. Again, three things that this account will tell us. Where Jesus fits in history, where he fits in the story of Israel, and where he fits in their lives and in our lives as well. So let's consider those just quickly. Where Jesus fits in history. Again, the main reason he's insistent they get in the boat is because he wants to shield them from misguided understandings of who the Messiah really is. Here, you know, think of Jesus as like, as like the parent. He's the parent who covers the child's ears, you know, when that commercial comes on television that uses a, a potty word, okay? When that song comes on the radio. He's the parent covering the ears of the child, in this case, the disciples. He wants them out of the situation, okay, so that they're not uh, tainted. They're not misguided, again, by the crowd as to exactly who he is and why he's come. If you were to look at Mark's gospel of this event, he actually gives us this fascinating verse. He says, and Jesus got into the boat with them, this is again later in the story, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, here's why, they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What is that telling us? It's telling us that in spite of all they've seen already, that Jesus has confronted the sick and healed them. Remember earlier in the gospel, he turned water into wine. He's healed a man at the pool who was paralyzed and, you know, an invalid for 38 years. He's done all these incredible things. Just a minute ago, he's fed five to 10,000 people with just a few loaves and a, and a few fish. And yet, in spite of all of that, they still don't know who he is. They're still shortchanging Jesus. They still simply think he's just another political revolutionary. And they want to impose upon him, then, their designs for freedom. Freedom from oppressors and those sort of things. But in reality, they're actually not giving Christ his proper due. That might sound like a great honor. Hey, Christ, we want to make you king. We want to make you the next president. We want to make you the next revolutionary. 
okay? But it's actually shortchanging him. He's come to do so much more than that. That Christ isn't, even though this would be a high honor for Israel, he isn't the next Solomon. He's not. He's not the next David. He's not the next, you know, Maccabean uh, rebel, the next revolutionary, the next great political liberator. He's not those things. He's beyond those things. He's come to effect a much greater deliverance, that he is the Lord of all history. He is the Lord of all time. He's not just king of Israel. He's king of the whole world. He's king of the universe. He's king of all. And so Jesus here, in his dismissal of the disciples, again, wants them to miss out and not be influenced, if you will, by this false thinking. He sends them ahead. But then what he does is he literally walks to them on the water as if, as if to give them one more demonstration of who he really is. Okay, so if the, you know, if the Zephyr Hills to the Cabernet back at the wedding didn't do it for you, and if me healing the invalid of 38 years didn't do it for you, and if now feeding 5,000 still didn't do it for you, let me give you one more example of who I am is what Christ is trying to do here. And so as they're faced with a storm and a sinking boat and the stress and anxiety, he comes to them walking on the water. Walking on the water. And what does he say? Don't fear. Don't fear. It is I. And as many of you might know, in the, in the original language, the, the phrase being used there, it is I, is a reference in the Greek back to the original Hebrew, okay, of the Old Testament, when God identifies himself as who? I am. The great I am. Christ literally says, do not fear, I am. Do not fear, I exist. Do not fear, I am here. Do not fear, I am identifying myself with the God of Israel. I'm identifying myself with the true God. I'm identifying myself with the God of all creation, of all history. I'm not just a political liberator. I'm not just another revolutionary. I'm not just an upstart preacher. He's saying he's God. That's where he fits in history. He's the Lord of all history. He's the God of all history. But then secondly, this event reveals how he fits into the story of Israel. If you remember last week, I mentioned as we look in John's gospel, John has taken us on this sort of historic walking tour where Jesus finds himself, not accidentally, but finds himself very strategically at places that would have had significance in Israel's history. And he's doing this, of course, to show how he is the fulfillment of all of these things, that he is the embodiment of the promises made to Israel long ago. And so here, in this event, again, Jesus puts on grand display just how he fits into that story. That he, Jesus, is the greater Moses. That he is leading people out of, out of Egypt, if you will, out of the greater slavery of sin and death. He's doing that just like Moses led Israel out of Egypt. If you remember, how did Moses lead them out of Egypt? It followed the Passover meal. And so Jesus, when he feeds the 5,000, is hearkening back to the Passover meal, where Moses, if you will, feeds the people of Israel. He now comes and he feeds the people of Israel. But as you remember, Moses and Israel come out of Egypt, and what do they do? They cross the Red Sea. 
They crossed the Red Sea out onto dry land. And so here now you have Jesus, again, the greater Moses, feeding God's people. And now, what is he doing? He's walking on the sea. He's passing, if you will, through the sea. And we'll begin to see later in this chapter that he is superseding Moses. He goes beyond Moses because Moses gave us bread from heaven, manna. What does Christ give us? He gives us his body. He gives us the true bread of heaven, which we celebrate in a moment at the table. And later in this chapter, he will unpack just all, that, all the implications of those things. But again, for the disciples in that boat, the disciples in that moment, they're having now all the dots of their history connected for them. That this man who has come is not just another prophet. He's not just another teacher. He's simply not just some revolutionary. That he is the God of all history. He's the God of Israel. But he's more than that. He's the God of all peoples, at all places, at all times. And he's showing them exactly how this story now, the story which began with Israel, but has spread out to the whole world, is now coming to fruition. That the Messiah, the one to whom all the stories alluded to and foreshadowed, are now coming to be, coming to true, right before their eyes. So how does he fit into Israel's history? He's fulfilling it. He's bringing all the pieces together in a beautiful mosaic that is his life and his ministry and his death and his resurrection. But then lastly, thirdly, this story also shows us how Jesus fits into our lives. And notice how that scope narrowed. This story, it's only a few short verses, but we see Jesus as God, we see Jesus as the hope of Israel and all nations, and now we bring it home even closer, and we see Jesus as the hope for our lives. How do we see that? We see it quite easily. I may not have realized it, but that one day when I fell into the pool at my aunt's house, I can, you know, poke fun at my parents, but I realized in that moment that I might not have seen it, might not have known it then, but there wasn't a moment when I was riding that tricycle where my parents, namely my father, his watchful gaze wasn't upon me. So that the moment I fell in, he was there. I joke about it. It wasn't quite as precarious as it sounds. I mean, he was there in an instant. I fall in, he was there. Though I couldn't see it, though I didn't realize it then, he was there. There wasn't a moment in that ride where his watchful gaze wasn't upon me. And that's true here in this text as well. That when these men are called to be disciples of Christ, when we are called to follow after Jesus as Christians, as we know, it doesn't mean that we're going to be spared from the storms. It doesn't mean that we're going to be spared from the troubled waters. In fact, unfortunately, as we know, sometimes it only invites those things. The life of the Christian is often the life of the cross. The gospel tell us that the, the, you know, the, the student is not above the teacher. That if the world rejected Christ, they're going to reject us also. And so the road of the Christian is often the road through turbulent waters, choppy waters. It's through the storms of life. 
And the disciples, early on in their following of Jesus, they see this firsthand. They're in the boat, and the wind and the waves come. And what a picture for the church. We follow Christ. We find ourselves smack dab in the middle of the boat, and yet the wind and the waves come. And yet in those moments, what do we realize? What is the hope of the gospel? What do the scriptures promise us and tell us? That when the storms come, when the waves come, when the lightning comes, when the rain comes, so too does God. That we have Emmanuel, God with us. And we might not always see it. We might not always feel it. But the watchful and loving and protecting gaze of God is always upon us. And he's always there to meet us in our very present time of need. There's a great uh, song, an older Christian song that says, Mercy came running like a prisoner set free, past all my failures to the point of my need. When the sin that I carried was all I could see, mercy came running, came running to me. And you see that here in the text. There's a lot of theological things going on here, like I've tried to tease out for you. But in the day, the disciples might not have realized that in the moment. They just realized, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. And what do you see the God of the universe, the God of all humanity do? He comes running. He comes running. Literally, he comes walking on the water, walking over our troubles, walking over whatever it is that in the moment is terrifying us. And he comes and he says, it is I. He comes and says, I am. Do not be afraid. And you see, that's the hope that we have as Christians. And that's what we celebrate, honestly, not just on Reformation Sunday, but every Sunday. That no matter where we find ourselves, we worship a God who comes down and meets us wherever we are. That we don't have to get to him. We don't have to climb a ladder to him. He comes down to us. He meets us exactly where we are in our trouble, in our sin, in our failures, in our difficulties. And he loves us. He's with us. And he promises to never leave us or forsake us. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this amazing story. And Lord, it's easy sometimes to just think of these as stories far removed. Legends almost. Fables almost. That sound great, that are poignant and poetic. But we fail to always realize that these are real people. Dealing with real struggles. Living like we are in a really broken world. And so God, we're thankful that in these stories we find ourselves we identify with the fears. We identify with the failures. We identify with that crying out, that need for help. And yet, Lord, may we also make them the connection to our lives that you are really present. That just as you came and you really rescued those disciples, you have come, Lord, and you have really rescued us. You have indeed come and done for us what we can never do for ourselves that you have lived that life that we can never live, satisfying the law, that you died the death that we deserve as lawbreakers, covering all of our sin. 
And that, Lord, you have risen from the, from the grave. That you are seated at the right hand of God. And that, that too, is our destiny as well, for all who trust in you by faith and faith alone. And so, God, we thank you. We praise you. We ask that the finished work of Christ, the gospel, nothing else, would be what we found our lives upon, not just here on Sundays, but every day of the week. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.